Welcome to episode 80 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Naduka Vernon, a M4, currently completing his MPH at Emory University School of Medicine, as well as an AAEM RSA Advocacy Committee member, speaks with Dr. Kimberly Herard, a resident at Emory University School of Medicine. Today, Mr. Vernon and Dr. Herard discuss experiences of women of color in the emergency department. We're excited to have second part in our series, Experiences of Women of Color in the ED. My name is Nduka Vernon. I, I'm a fourth year medical student at Emory University in Atlanta. And I have with me today a very special guest, Dr. Kimberly Herard. Uh, she hails from Naples, Florida. Uh, she went to undergrad at Emory University as well here in Atlanta and majored in neuroscience and behavioral biology. Uh, she attended medical school at Florida Atlantic University and is now a PGY-1 resident here at Emory University in emergency medicine. Uh, she currently serves as the service co-chair in the residency and as the EMRA International Committee vice chair. Also, she serves as the NMA EM section committee resident rep. So I'm happy to introduce our guest today, Dr. Kimberly Herard. Thank you for having me. Hopefully I got everything right on that introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so today I, I wanted to uh, have a resident join us to discuss uh, the transition from medical school to residency, especially in the crazy year that has been uh, 2020. So the first question, Dr. Harad, did you talk about any pressures you felt because of your race or your gender throughout medical school? and how you dealt with that stress to get to the point at which you are today. Being a Haitian American female, there's already double negatives there. I'm a female and I am black. As we know, most of medicine was initially Caucasian men and actually going into emergency medicine into a specialty that was mostly Caucasian men gave me a lot of stress. I always wondered if I was good enough, would I be smart enough, would I move fast enough? When I speak loud enough in the ED that the patients can hear me and the nurses can hear me and the team could hear me and actually go through with things that I had planned for uh, patients. Um, would the patients actually trust me as a physician, considering I'm only 5'3", again, I am black and female. Would they actually listen to me or consider me as their nurse? It causes a lot of imposter syndrome. Even just a few days ago, I referred to myself as a medical student because I forgot <laughs> that I was a resident. It, it, it is very stressful. It's very scary. You end up comparing yourself a lot. Um, that's what I did. I compared myself a lot to my classmates. Um, was I smart enough or was I saying the right answers? Was I getting the, the, the same percentages correct on uh, test questions that they were? And honestly, you kind of have to ignore those things and do as best as you can, because there's different things that I could bring to the table as an African-American female into medicine. And if I work with that, then there's no need to compare myself to other students or residents. I appreciate that response. And that's definitely part of the burden of being in the, in the minority, right? And in, in medicine, uh, is feeling as though you have to uh, sort of carry the weight of of being that minority in, in medicine. You definitely feel that you have to carry the weight. And then 
Growing up in in Florida and going to medical school in Florida, being Haitian, I saw a lot of the staff in the hospital who were also Haitian. And when they'd walk down, I'd walk down the hall and they would notice and like, oh, she's Haitian. Like, look at her last name. And they would just give me a lot of encouragement, like congratulations, keep doing what you're doing, stand strong. We're so proud of you. And those are also things that would help kind of relieve the stress because someone could at least see that I was trying as hard as I could to become a physician to help the medically underserved. What are some other ways that you dealt with that stress? And you mentioned imposter syndrome, which is something that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people listening <laughs> to this are familiar with as medical students. What are some, some ways that you dealt with that, that imposter syndrome and, and you feel as though, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as though you're, you're getting used to stepping into that role mm-hmm. of being a physician. Yeah. What are some, some ways that you dealt with that? I'm very spiritual. So prayer was a very big thing because the way that you feel uh, and the confidence that you have, you have to kind of build it for yourself. You can't wait for someone to tap you on the back and say, congratulations, you're doing a good job. So it was really me forcing myself to believe that I belonged where I did, um, believing, believing that I deserved uh, what I did achieve, believing that I could do better and that I didn't need to compare myself to others. So being spiritual and kind of just encouraging myself. Even if it was a bad day or I had a bad case, trying to think back to all the times that a patient said thank you, that a, a nurse felt that I heard them and that I wasn't trying to speak over them. A nurse, you know, felt that I was working well with her or him. Um, those are the things that kind of made me feel better as a person and made me feel like I can do this. I can do this job. I can be a physician. I can understand what is going on with the patient clinically. Um, and even if I'm not able to do to do that at that point, there's a team that can assist me. If I can at least make the fa- patient feel better, that would make me feel better as a, a future physician or now as a physician. What are some interactions or, or it's a better way to phrase this is what are some interactions you've had with mentors that you think have helped you along that path and helped you develop that confidence again into stepping into the role of of being a physician? I have definitely leaned on a lot of mentors who look like me, who have gone through some of the similar pathways that I have to kind of understand how they are able to stand strong. And a lot of the people that I chose as mentors are women that I look at and I'm like, I just want to be half as good as you. I want to be as half as intelligent as you. I want to be able to command a crowd, command a team as well as you. A lot of those people also dealt with um, imposter syndrome. They have continued to just believe in themselves. They've continued to work as hard as they can, not comparing themselves to others. Um, And they've continued to climb the ranks. Like one of my mentors is chief resident here. And I met her at the end of her of her first year, her PGY one year. She just exuded so much confidence, Mm -hmm. but she was also very caring. And just listening to her speak to patients, speak to me and speak to the team, just watching her do those things gave me a little bit of confidence and kind of, I try to like emulate the way that she spoke to patients, emulate the way that they interacted. Um, There's another mentor of mine who's currently in Chicago. She intubated a patient and commanded the room so well. So when I did my first intubation, I was like, let me be like that doctor. Let me be like her. How did she command the room? And I, with doing that, I felt so much more confident. And, you know, one thing that's important that I've seen a lot of my mentors do is communicating with the whole team, always updating the patient, updating the nurses, updating the techs. I'm hearing everyone's concerns so that everyone is on the same page. When I did my first intubation and I commanded the room and I explained every step that I was doing. Mm-hmm. They just trusted me more and I also trusted myself more. 
The next question that I think would be really helpful for some of our medical student listeners is what recommendations do you have for students who may be struggling with imposter syndrome or struggling to identify as part of the physician community? And you mentioned your your path and your journey so or some of your journey so far. What recommendations do you have for some students who may be listening and even residents? Mm -hmm. Um, this is a hard question, mainly because I'm still battling with imposter syndrome. Every day I still question what I know or what I don't know. I still have to exude this, this level of confidence that sometimes I don't feel that I have. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm not sure what's going on with the patient and I still have to, to act like I do when I go talk to the patients. And when I present the patient to my attendings, I still have to kind of understand a little bit of what's going on. So, you know, I'm still dealing with the imposter syndrome. Some things that have helped me so far, whenever the day is over, there's always going to be something that you don't know. So I go home and try to learn that topic. I try to understand a little bit better. And I use the patient as the patient case. Like I don't have to read from a textbook and try to figure out what's going on pathologically. I saw a patient who had it. So I go home and I read a little bit about it and I, I then say, okay, this is why the patient's BUN was elevated. Uh, this is why the patient had these uh, clinical signs. Um, these are things that are gonna kind of help me understand a pathology better so that the next day when I go into the hospital, I have seen that case, I've read about that case and I could better treat this patient. Another thing that I do is when I do have a patient, for example, that had CHF, and I discuss the treatment plan with the attending, the next day, if someone sounds like they might have CHF, I'll pick up that patient because then I'll be able to use what I learned the, the day before or the, the my shift before to uh, treat this patient. Another thing that helps me with imposter syndrome is literally asking 21 million questions. The attendings have been working for forever. The residents have been residents for years before me. The nurses have been doing their job for a long time rather than my one year, really only like four months of residency. Um, so I ask questions and they then teach you the things that they learned while, while in residency or while in school. They teach you how they like to care for a patient. They treat, uh, teach you how to take care of a patient that's a little aggressive. Ask questions because they'll just give you their personal anecdotes and their personal uh, experiences that will help me become a better physician. And also, like you mentioned, reaching out to mentors who have had similar journeys with you. And it's very powerful to be able to identify those people who have been through things similar to you. Right. And, you know, have gotten to the places at which you you hope to end up. So. Right. Another thing is for each day that you end up working in the hospital, working with a patient, try to come up with one good thing that you're going to do for that patient. And honestly, sometimes it doesn't have to be clinical. Sometimes it's getting the patient a cup of water when they ask. Sometimes it's getting the patient to laugh. The nurses will come and leave the room. The attending will come and leave the room. But you might have a little bit more time to kind of understand where the patient's coming from. And if you can kind of delve deeper into why they're in the hospital, that will make the patient and you have better rapport. They'll trust you better. And at the end of the day, you can feel like you did something. Most people that go into medical school and become doctors say they want to help patients. But sometimes we get bogged down in the clinical aspects of medicine that we forget that the patient is a person. With my imposter syndrome, I am able to kind of interact with patients a little better in that I, I build rapport. I'm able to understand them a little bit better, understand the social issues and social determinants of health 
that bring them into the hospital. And it makes me and the patient feel better at the end of the day. I definitely think that's an undersold aspect of medical school. It mm -hmm. can be an undersold aspect of medicine because, as you said, people can get bogged down in the pathophysiology. But as we progress through our, through our careers, I think that as, as we encounter those difficult moments in which we may not feel as though we're the smartest person in the room or we may not feel as though we have the highest test scores or right. the knowledge that we may feel that we need in, in specific situations, having that human touch and that emotional right. intelligence can go a very long way. And again, that all of that adds to who we are as, mm -hmm. as people and in this situation, who we are as doctors. Right. And, and being a doctor is not about your test score. <laughs> it's not about where you went to school. It's not about where you went to residency. It's how you made that patient feel when they walk out of the hospital. And if you cannot say that that patient feels better or is more understood, or at least you've considered their social issues that have brought them into the hospital, then you might not have cared for the patient as well as you should have. Mm -hmm. And that does not mean that I need to know everything in the textbook. It literally just means listening to the patient. Definitely, definitely. So having talked about a little bit about your experience as a medical student and your journey, I'd like to hear more about your experience as a woman of color from the South, uh, getting ready for residency uh, in 2020, uh, how you dealt with the events that have transpired so far in 2020, uh, and how you've navigated the first few months of residency. What a time to be alive. <laughs> so first off, I went to school in Florida, and we know, what, we know how Florida decided to vote uh, this time around. And growing up again in Florida, in a county that is always red, I have learned to deal with things. I've learned to close my eyes and look the other way just so that I can continue to function normally and not get sad and not get upset and not be hurt by certain things that occur. Even in my medical school, in a class of 64, where there was only six minority students. It was tough. There are episodes that have occurred in school that were a little on the racist side, but there wasn't really many other people to turn to and talk to about it. Um, there was a time that someone in a high standing showed a video that was blatantly racist. Um, and thankfully, there were other people that did not look like me that was able to point out that that was a very racist video. I have just continued to speak to the uh, students that looked like me at the time to kind of feel a little bit better. We graduated, didn't see much of each other. COVID came into the mix. We saw who was dying from COVID. We saw who was getting affected with COVID. Continuing all this, we continued to hear on the news how the current president of the United States uh, dealt with COVID how he discussed certain things that were happening, how he talked about minorities. And then with all the Black Lives Matter, but really no Black Lives Don't Matter, all lives matter. So that whole discussion, that came up a lot. While in medical school, in the summertime between uh, medical school and residency, even years before 2020, it has honestly been tough. Again, how do I manage it? Sometimes I have to look the other way because I don't have the energy to deal with it because I have to go and work as a resident. I have to go home and study so that I can go back to work tomorrow and be a resident. 
There's times that I cannot watch the news because all I know it's going to be negativity. Um, so I don't watch the news sometimes. Talking to people that look like me, but also talking to those that are allies. Here at Emory, I have felt so supported. I was not worried when I matched here that I would not have support. When I matched here, I knew that I was going to be okay. In fact, a few weeks after matching, there was email sent to the whole residency program from residency leadership discussing some of the issues that were happening and the lo uh, loss of lives of Black men that were being gunned down by police. They were saying that they hear us, they care about us, they want us to know that we'll be supported. If they wanted to talk, they hadn't even like, we hadn't even been together as a group yet. And they were very supportive and reaching out and saying, hey, if you need to talk, if you're worried, let us know. That has honestly been very helpful. And I don't know if all other minority residents have felt that support through the residency, um, but I have felt very supported by the leadership here. I felt supported by residents uh, in my in my class. They are all very open-minded. They all love to discuss what's going on, but in a way that's more supportive than just having a discourse. It's never to add more stress. It's really just, hey, how are you guys doing today? They they often check in on us, which is great. And I think that speaks to the reality that in choosing a residency program and choosing where to end up, we should really be cognizant of the support that we'll have in those programs and in our career going forward. Because for people in general, but for in, in particular uh, minority individuals who are in medicine, uh, there are a lot of uh, extraneous factors mm -hmm. outside of the hospital that can weigh on, on our minds. And in, in, in some ways, I can feel as though, you know, you can be fighting an uphill battle. Sometimes it feels like it's too much, but the support is vital. Mm -hmm. um, you need the support. Support is is needed because we cannot move forward with if we're holding onto a bunch of luggage. Mm -hmm. Definitely need to search out a program that you feel you'll get that support. And I was very thankful that I ended up here um, in Atlanta because Emory has been super supportive from day one. So what do you think have been the hardest uh, parts of the first few months of training? That imposter syndrome that we continue to talk about, um, that was very hard. Just transitioning from saying, hey, I'm Kim, I'm the fourth year medical student, to saying, hey, I'm Kim, I'm the resident. Um, and actually, I'm still having trouble saying I'm the doctor. I still say resident <laughs> or resident physician or the nurse will say, oh, the doctor's here. And I'll be like, hi, yes, I'm the resident. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's one of the biggest transitions moving quickly. So the days just keep rolling. You're in the hospital for a very long time. You're trying to see as many patients as possible. You're trying to get your notes in, but you're also trying to learn pathology. You're trying to understand what doses of medication to give. Um, how often do I need to give it? When is a patient sick or not sick? So really transitioning from being the medical student who has a lot of upper residents and attendings and nurses kind of watching and teaching to being the resident who has one attending, maybe another resident who's there to support. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing that the things that you order will actually be given to the patient, the <laughs> tests that you order will actually be tested, the diagnosis that you indicate the patient has will actually be considered. And oh, by the way, you actually have to talk to attendings and nurses and give a report about the patient. So dealing with all of those changes and the increase in responsibility has been one of the hardest. I'm happy to have that responsibility. It's what I've always wanted. But actually 
following through and actually doing the things that I need to do is just the transition, realizing, oh my God, I have to click this button to admit the patient and write this note and then call this person. And I still have to double check on the patient because they're still in the emergency department. Um, so that is one of the hardest things, just transitioning from being a student to being a resident. And I know you mentioned you, you're still in the process. Of course, you're, you're still in the process of figuring things out. I don't, I don't know that that process ever stops. But what are some things that uh, you have identified that have helped you stay organized or mm -hmm. have a sort of flow throughout the days when you're managing these numerous things at once? Mm -hmm. Definitely introducing myself to the patient and knowing them as a patient rather than a bed number. I can remember a patient more by their name and what they told me about their family rather than, oh, the patient's in bed uh, 17. I can't remember that. But if I remember the patient, I'm like, oh, yeah, she's the one with CHF. She's the one with the liver failure. We need to admit her to the hospital. So definitely getting to know the patient as more than just a bed number and more than a diagnosis. Um, I definitely have a, a sheet of paper that I write everything down. And the minute details, by the way, I don't have time to write essays. So I'm just writing uh, a few bullet points of information that I want to remember when I talk to the attending, when I talk to the admitting team, when I talk to the nurses. Definitely continuing to check on all of my patients. So I might pick up two or three patients at a time, go see them. I still had two patients that I saw earlier in the day. I'd go back and, and kind of go see them again, make sure everything's okay, making sure they're not in any pain, making sure that they're admitted to where they need to be, making sure their ride is here to pick them up so they can go home. Um, it's definitely continuing to check in on your patients, check in with the attending, and check in with the nurse. Communication, I feel, has been one of the most important things to getting me to, uh, to handling the workload in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And on the topic of patients and making sure you know your patients, how do you think 2020 with the pandemic and uh, social unrest have affected the way that you approach uh, your patient interactions? Again, one of the biggest things for me is also considering the social determinants of health. A lot of patients that are coming in may be stressed about what's going on. They may be stressed about COVID. They may not have seen their children for a long time. They have missed doctor's appointments because they've been canceled. So I need to consider all of these things when I treat a patient. It could be a simple um, exacerbation of their asthma. They haven't had a chance to go to the doctor to get um, an, a new inhaler, to get prescriptions ref uh, refilled. So they're coming in for that. Um, I have to consider that patients that are coming in with any shortness of breath may have COVID. They may have exposed other people because they didn't know that they had COVID. You have to also continue uh, continue to consider the health literacy of patients that we deal with as well. With this COVID, with the, the, the increased stress that's happening um, outside the doors, and uh, a lot of these things can uh, influence the patient and how, and how they're presenting. So you have to consider all of these things. Again, this is why I think it's very important to consider other details of a patient's medical history. For example, where do they live? How many people do they live with? Are they homeless? Are they not homeless? Uh, when was the last time they saw a doctor? All of these things need to be considered, especially now. Is there a particular, particularly powerful uh, patient or personal story related to COVID-19 or social unrest that's been happening that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I, I have two COVID stories. One story is a patient that came in with vomiting and diarrhea. And while I was talking with her, I didn't think much of it, vomiting and diarrhea. She was also pregnant, by the way. But then I heard her coughing. 
And I'm like, um, you, are you okay? Like, what's, have you been coming for a long time? She's like, no, my throat's just dry. I leave her. I go back and check on her like I like to do on, uh, on all my patients. I went back and checked on her. She was still coughing. Gave her some water. I left and I went back and checked on her. She was still coughing. I was like, okay, so we're going to do a COVID test on you. Mm -hmm. And she was discharged from the hospital. We gave her the precautions. Don't hang out with anyone for 14 days until we get the results back. On her drive, on the drive back is when we found her results and she was positive. Wow. So from that interaction, I realized that you can literally develop the symptoms of COVID within hours and come in for something completely different. People don't knowingly or willingly expose other people to COVID. They just don't realize that they have it. The other issue is with COVID, we know the health, we know the health disparities that are presenting with COVID. And she was one of those patients that, that fit the, fit the mold. And so considering all of those issues, um, the social determinants of health were things that I could have dis discussed with her to kind of figure out that, oh, your vomiting and diarrhea may be related to something else. And the other worry was that she was pregnant. So while she was driving back home, I had to explain all the precautions she would have to take and also explain the different things with her pregnancy that she was uh, worried about. So with that experience, I, I definitely kind of, my ears kind of stood up a little bit. And I was more attentive to when patients came in with random symptoms and paid attention to kind mm -hmm. of like, like, are you coughing? Are you not? Are there any other issues that I should consider that might lead me to thinking that you have COVID or at least should get tested for COVID. The other personal thing is that my whole family got diagnosed with COVID. Wow. We were quarantining and we got exposed to COVID and half my family was sick. Mm. Um, at this time, COVID was still kind of new. I was worried. I was checking my parents' pulse, pulse ox every five seconds, checking their lungs. Uh, my husband also got COVID with us and we brought him down to quarantine. COVID is scary. It, it was a scary time to have COVID. We were all okay, but I can't. That's not always the case. There are families that have lost many, many people. And I am blessed that God was able to touch our family and protect each and every one of us. But that's never the case all the time. COVID has been a scary time. It's been very stressful. It's been very painful for a lot of families. Um, a lot of people have lost someone to COVID, know someone who's been lost to COVID or had COVID themselves, and are probably still having lasting negative impacts on their health. And as you sort of mentioned, the events of 2020 have put a, a lot of racial disparities and socioeconomic disparities in general uh, into the limelight. I'm not sure about your experience in medical school, but I can say that it's, it feels as though medical education is, is slowly catching on to how important it is to discuss uh, the socioeconomic factors that contribute to ethnic and racial differences in health and mortality. Um, what do you think is missing in medical education related to these issues? Uh, what would you like to see change? I think as medical students, we focus more on the numbers. We focus on step one and taking step two to make sure we get the highest score possible so we can get into the best residency program and to the best specialty possible. Um, because of our focus on these numbers and these tests, uh, we don't really care about learning the other things that make health important. We were, we're so focused on trying to become a doctor that we forget the important things that make us good doctors. Um, I think that if we can focus more on social determinants of health in medical school, um, that would make things a lot better for our patients in the future. It is very important to know 
the science behind why someone is sick and the science behind why these medications and these treatment options will help. Um, however, we do really need to take more of a focus on the social issues that make a patient go into the hospital in the first place and the social issues that can bring that same patient back after you've done all of that work to help them get better. I think that if we can somehow put more of an emphasis on these social determinants of health early on, it would be very beneficial. And to that point, it, I don't know about you, but I can say from my personal experience, to, to an extent, it almost feels as though the ways or the limited ways in which uh, some medical schools can approach these issues, it almost feels as though it is almost a disregarding of, of your personal experience and the impact that your personal experience has on who you are as an individual, uh, as a medical student and as a physician. Because in a lot of ways, our experiences outside of medical medical school shape the way that we view ourselves and right. in so doing shape the way that we view our patients. And how we interact with our patients. Exactly. Um, I feel like if you have more experiences, if you if you're a little bit more open to to working with other people, to working with different patients, working with patients that don't look like you, don't talk like you, don't come from the same place, you just learn more. You just know better. You know how to better approach a patient. You know how to better interact with a patient and you know how to consider the issues that may make them come back to the hospital. You will consider their treatment options uh, with the social um, issues that may affect their health. You will have less judgment on a patient um, if you can consider where they come from and, and why they're coming to the hospital in the first place. Rather than judging their health literacy, you will be a better teacher for them so that they don't have to come back to the hospital in the same situation. If we could continue to further implement social determinants of health in medical school, again, I think the patients will have a better, will have better outcomes. And to that point, as someone who has family members on both sides of the spectrum, someone who's a physician and family members with limited health literacy, it adds to your acumen, I guess, mm -hmm. as a physician to have that experience and to be familiar and be understanding of the struggles that individuals with health literacy um, go through as they try to navigate the healthcare system. Right. And that in and of itself, it, while the science is undoubtedly important and the path, understanding the pathophysiology is, is the foundation of, of being an, a competent physician, the majority of our patients' health, for the most part, it comes from their experiences outside, outside of, of the hospital, the hospital exactly. and outside of the clinic. My family is from Haiti, and again, one of the things that made me want to do medicine, and specifically emergency medicine, is watching the natural disasters that were occurring in Haiti um, when I was growing up. Hearing the stories that my parents spoke about, about their hospital um, interactions when they were living in Haiti, and hearing the issues that my younger cousins who were living in Haiti during the earthquake discussed when they now have moved to the U.S. I also had a cousin who was actually in a detention, at a, in a detention center um, for a year in Colorado. And just hearing the different things that they are lacking medical wise has made me want to work harder to understand the social issues uh, when I interact with a patient. There's so much that patients need rather than just giving them the right treatment and telling them what they have. Explain what they have to them. Tell them what things they should be careful for. Tell them it's important to go follow up with their primary care doctor. Explain to them what a primary care doctor is. Your job should be focused on teaching the patient rather than just telling them what they have. 
you could you don't get a gold star for correctly diagnosing a patient. You can get a gold star by making sure the patient understands what they should and should not be doing to increase their um, health healthcare outcomes and improve their health outcomes. What are some things that you've been doing outside of the hospital to maintain your your mental health and overall wellness, especially uh, in the face of I'm sure these schedule changes and this limited free time that you've had in, in these first few months, what have you been been doing to maintain your mental health? If I'm not in the hospital, I'm trying to sleep. If I'm not sleeping, I am exercising. If I'm not exercising, I am trying to read a book. I love reading. I used to love reading when I was younger, kind of slowed down in college because you had to start reading chemistry textbooks. But I've started to pick up reading again because it is very helpful. It is stress relieving and it kind of takes me away from the stressful world that I'm living in into another world. Um, it also does provide me with some education. I've currently been reading some books, uh, Toni Morrison, Edgewitch, Danticat, um, who's also from Haiti. So that kind of gives me a little bit inspiration. I kind of understand where she's coming from as an author. So I love, I love reading. I have always been a gardener. I grew, I get that from my mother and my grandmother, who also did a lot of gardening in Haiti. My mother has a large garden in her backyard in Florida now. Georgia gets a little colder. So it's not as um, easy to have gardens, but I have been growing peppers, cilantro, mint, and I also have my indoor um, plants as well. I recently got a monstera, so I'm excited about that. I'm hoping it starts to grow nice and large and has some new fenestration soon. Mm. I also have been trying to get better with my cooking. I love food, but I'm also broke. Um, so if I can cook a lot of the dishes that I love at home, I would save so much more money. That would have, part of what you said would have been the funniest <laughs> thing I've heard all day. And that you said Georgia gets pretty cold and I'm sure there are people from Chicago. Uh, and it's York not that cold, <laughs> but it's cold <laughs> for my plants. And also I was impressed with you throwing out plant, plant species. That was impressive. <laughs> so what do you, what would you say has been your favorite part of residency so far? Finally doing what I've always wanted to do. I always said, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to work in the emergency department. I want to help patients. And now I'm actually doing that. Now I'm putting in orders. I'm talking to patients. I'm giving them a plan. I'm encouraging them to go to a primary care doctor. I'm scheduling their primary care doctor uh, appointment with them. I'm doing what I've always wanted to do. And that feels great. Yeah, I might wake up super tired in the morning. I might go to bed really late at night. I might have a lot of back pain from standing up for, for nine hours at a time. I still wake up really happy knowing that I'm going into the hospital to do what I've always wanted to do. And I truly have felt that I have been able to help people. The other thing I love about residency is learning. I'm learning how to be a doctor that can work on their own in the future. I'm learning how to care for patients. I'm learning how to care for patients that are a little bit more agitated. I'm learning how to care for patients that don't trust the healthcare system, and I'm trying to change that for them. I'm learning how to diagnose patients and how to give them medication, when to give them medication. And I'm also learning when I need help, when it's time to call those consults, when it's time to call another resident to kind of help me decide what I want to do with this patient. Residency has been stressful. It has been tiring, but it's one of the happiest times that I've had. Finally, getting to live that dream. As someone who's almost there, that's refreshing. Mm -hmm. It's funny to hear. I'm glad 
Glad I have that to look forward to. You have so much to look forward to. And when you start to see people that look like you, when you start to see people that come from the same state that you come from, the same country that you come from, and you, you, you're just doing the things that you wanted to do, it, it really does feel good. Any advice for people applying to EM programs this year? And also any advice for people who may be struggling or just starting out or will be transitioning from from medical school to residency in terms of maintaining their mental health. And just to go back to what you said earlier, I think one of the, one of the more powerful things you mentioned about uh, addressing the imposter syndrome was being communicative mm-hmm. uh, and ensuring that essentially we don't try to take on the world by ourselves, uh, that we reach out to the resources that are around us, both in the hospital and outside of the hospital. Definitely have to, yeah. So. Yeah. Any any advice for, for people? Find a mentor, someone that has gone down similar paths that you want to go down, that seem to be doing things that you like. Reach out to them. Ask them how they got there. Ask them if there's anything they would like to change. Ask them if there's something that they wish that they knew before they started on the journey. The other uh, piece of advice is believing in yourself. Fix that imposter syndrome now. Um, Again, it's going to be something that you may be dealing with for a while, but try to build your confidence now. Do not become overconfident. We do not know everything, but try to be confident when you interact with a patient. Try to be confident when you talk with the nursing team. And when there's something you don't know, it's okay to not know and still be confident. Just ask for help. Making sure you ask for help, ask uh, an attending or a nurse or a resident, how would you take care of this patient? How do you do this so that I don't do it wrong the next time? How did you learn how to do this better? That is, I think, super important. And and hearing the expertise that someone has built for years and years working as a physician, that is where you can learn, not just the textbook, but from personal experiences that people have had. Find something that you can do outside of medicine that gives you relaxation. Find something that makes you happy. Find something that you can quickly turn to that is safe, um, healthy, but also something that builds you up as a person because you are not just going to be a physician. You are, ju- you are not just a medical student. You are more than that. And remembering who you are before you started this process is key to, to, to finishing well. I think one of the powerful things you just said is reaching out to people of different statuses uh, throughout the hospital, whether it's the attendings or the residents or the nurses or respiratory therapists, what have you, we can all learn something from everyone around us, um, no matter what their title or, or their status is. And that's one thing I love so much about emergency medicine. You are in need of everybody on the team. I think one thing going on with this COVID pandemic, so many people have been getting accolades, but we sometimes forget people like the janitorial service that are helping clean up the rooms and exposing themselves mm-hmm. to possibly uh, to COVID. They are cleaning up the room so that your next patient can go in there. We need them. They're working super hard, exposing themselves to COVID, working away from their families sometimes because they're exposing themselves to COVID in the hospital. Making sure that you use the whole team is very vital. The whole team is important, especially in the emergency department. And that's one thing I love about medicine so much. It's it's not a singular job. So we all have stories to share and we all have lessons that we've learned from our stories that we can all learn from if we if we share those those stories and those lessons and it's been a pleasure to speak with you today dr Harard. thanks to hear some of your story and hear some of the lessons that you've gathered and 
hopefully you all, our listeners, have enjoyed and benefited from this conversation. Again, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much and have a great day. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about AEM RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.